WBUR Podcasts, Boston. You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form, and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. If you want more from the show you're hearing, jump over to that show's feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and welcome to episode two of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. We launched the series with episode one, where we learned about trust in the animal kingdom and how even guppies show that trust is an important factor in guppy society. Very, very cool. Today, we're going to refocus on human beings and what specifically happens in that spectacularly complex and beautiful network that is your brain when you trust someone or what happens in your brain when someone trusts you. And we're going to start by playing a game. And joining me to do that is Oriel Feldman Hall. Oriel is the director of the Feldman Hall Lab at Brown University, which studies the neural basis of human social behavior. She's also assistant professor of cognitive, linguistic, and psychological sciences at Brown University. Professor Feldman Hall, welcome to On Point. Hi, Megna. Thank you so much for having me here. Great to have you. Jamil Zaki is also with us today. He's the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab and associate professor of psychology at Stanford University. He's author of the forthcoming book, The Hopeful Skeptic. Professor Zaki, welcome back to On Point. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Megna. Okay, so Jamil, I'm going to ask you to help get us started uh, with this game that we're going to play called, appropriately, (laughs) The Trust Game. What is it? Perfect. So uh, let me just put you in your roles first and foremost. So Megna, you're going to be the investor in this game. And Oriel, hi, uh, you're going to be the trustee. (laughs) Um, So Megna, imagine that you have $10 sitting in front of you, all in $1 bills. Okay. Um, And you can send as much of this money as you want to Oriel. Now, whatever you send to her, I will multiply by four. So if you send $5 to her, it will turn into 20. If you send 10, it will turn into 40. Oriel, when you receive that money, you can then give whatever you want back to Megna, but you don't have to give anything back. Oh, so she get she could she could keep all of, like I could give her $5 and she'd get 20 and she could keep it all. She could keep everything if she wants. She could betray you right in front of the entire nation right now. <laughs> or the world, in fact, Or Oriel. the world. <laughs> Stakes are uh, so, high. <laughs> so, Megna, what what would you like to invest in Oriel? How much of your money would you like to invest right now? Okay, and then she, but she has the choice that she could give some of that back to me. She could give as much of it as she wants back to you. So, if you invest everything, ten dollars, it will turn into forty. If Oriel then decides to do the fair thing and give you back half you will end up with twice as much money as you have right now, and she will end up with $20 as well. So you both win. Okay. Or or she could give me $40 back. <laughs> or I, Technically, or, yes. Or she could keep it all as well. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm only laughing because depending on the situation, my risk tolerance kind of fluctuates. Um, uh, Oriole... Uh, okay, Oriel, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you five dollars. 
Okay, mm. uh, now I'm waving my magic wand. Oriel, you now have $20. How much of that would you like to give back to Megna? Okay, so now I'm thinking through why I might reciprocate that initial trustworthy action. So you didn't give me the full 10, so maybe you're a little <laughs> <Sorry>. bit cautious. <laughs> um, I can't even see I'm your face. We've about... never met each other. <laughs> I know. I, and then the question I'm, of course, considering is, are you going to have me back on air? And if you're not, maybe I just keep the $20 and go have a cup of coffee with some friends. I just want people to know that we never pay our guests, okay? Like, just, just want to put this out there. Regardless of the outcome of this experiment, Oriel, I'm sure we would love to have you back someday. So. <laughs> well, because there's a lot of people listening, I'm going to reciprocate that initial trustworthy action. You sent me $20 and I'm going to give you $10 back. So you've doubled your earnings and I've walked away with 10 as well. Oh, wait, did I double my earnings or did I end up with 10? I ended up with 10, right? You, you now, Megna, have ended. So the game is over. Congratulations to both of you. Megna, you are left with with $15. You kept five. Oh, I kept five. Okay, you right. So five got it, got and it. you got 10 back. Yeah. Oh. And, and Oriel, you have $10 uh, or sorry, you have... Uh, you have $10, $10 that $10. you didn't have before. Yeah. So, yeah. so this is, and also I want to say congratulations because you all did what most people do in a trust game uh, that is between two strangers. So uh, in a, a study of studies, a summary of lots and lots of different studies of the trust game, most investors send about 50% of the money that they have to a stranger. Oh, wow. And most strangers send about 40 to 50% of the of the quadrupled uh, amount of money back to the investor that sent it to them in the first place. So the 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 uh, the stranger gets gets off uh, with more money in the end. I will note that. But um <laughs> I have to say the reason why I didn't Oriel nothing personal, but the reason why I didn't <laughs> send all of the $10 to you with the hopes that we would both end up making more money is that I just thought, well, what if what if she keeps it? At least I walk away with five bucks, you know? <laughs> That's for, for sure. Although the that initial trustworthy action, deciding how much to send, whether let's say you sent a dollar or all 10, is actually a signal to myself, the role that I was playing for how much I usually send back. So the more you send, this is the data um, shows the more you send um, to me, the more I'm willing to reciprocate that initial trustworthy action. Okay. So show it, demonstrating that you trust someone can build, uh, yeah, the reciprocal levels of trust between people. That's interesting. Correct. So, so, so let's talk about what was happening in in our brains during the course of this um, this this experiment here. I mean, Oriel, what was what, what are some of the things going on neurologically that help uh, determine how much I you know decided to, to trust you and vice versa? Right. So when the brain is assessing whether to make a decision, just as you did with me, whether you want to trust me with a sum of money and whether I'm actually going to reciprocate it back, there's a region of the brain called the striatum. It's sort of nestled um, deep in the middle of the brain and it's involved in reward learning. So it uses rewards to learn about the world. And what happened when you made that decision is that the striatum became active. And it was one of the key regions that was making the decision to actually trust that $5 with me. 
Okay, so reward being uh, an important factor here. But Jamil, I I have to say, um, <clears throat> money is kind of an interesting thing. I think I'll just speaking for myself, my behavior when it comes to money is probably very different than my behavior if I just like met a random person on the street and they were, and they were like, "Hey, how's it going?" You know, do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I think I'm more protective when it comes to money and less trusting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I mean, it, the trust game that you just played is is the probably the the workhorse of social science in understanding how people trust when they're willing to be vulnerable uh, to somebody else on the hope that that person will reciprocate, as Oriel nicely said. But it's interesting because using money to study trust is sort of like using money to study kindness or other parts of our social lives. I mean, when we are friends with somebody, we don't just say, oh, I can tell you're having a hard day. Here's five bucks. Right? We, <laughs> we support each other. And when we trust somebody else, it's not always by forking over a bunch of money and seeing if they pay us back. We trust people to watch our kids. We trust people when we confide in them. And there's at least some evidence that when you move people, Magna, as you're saying, into the domain of money, they actually start acting differently. They start becoming more calculative, even sometimes more selfish. Uh, and, and so it, we might at the same time realize that there's a lot of value in using games like the one that you all just played, but there are limitations in understanding what social life is really like by just reducing it to money. Okay, so that that's an important caveat here. But even with that in mind, um, I just want to let people know that we have an online version of the Trust Game that's available at our website, onpointradio.org. So uh, head over to there and, and see um, what the game tells you about your relative levels of trust when it comes to, to money. Now, now um, Jamil Oriel had talked about the striatum and reward learning. So this is an important part of the brain that's... I don't know how to put it. Is it activated or is it active when we're building or demonstrating trust? What What is actually happening uh, in that part of the brain that uh, generates what we're experiencing as trust? Well, I think that, uh, as, as Oriel really put it very well, the, the striatum is a brain region or system in the brain that's associated with evaluating options. Uh, and in particular, you can think of trust as a social gamble. You put resources, time, energy into another person, and then if all goes well, you end up winning. In fact, you both end up winning. And it's not just with money. Of course, trust builds all sorts of other good things in our lives. But on the other side of that is the risk of betrayal. Um, which is both can be a monetary loss, but also can be an emotional loss if somebody hurts you or betrays your trust. And so the striatum is involved in assessing options that include risk. So maybe calculating, okay, what, as, as you were doing, Magna, saying, well, I don't know Oriel, but we are on the radio. <laughs> so so there, there are some reasons maybe to think that she could uh, take away, just run away with the money, but there are other reasons to think that she wouldn't. When you were evaluating the risk and likelihood, the ways that this gamble could turn out, that's a calculation that was occurring likely in part in your striatum. Okay. And, uh, and Oriel, we've got about a minute before we have to take the first break. So are there um, other parts of the brain or others that are important here? I've been reading about the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, which seems to come up yeah. a lot when it comes to um, human, particularly human behaviors. 
Right. Yeah, there's there's a network of brain regions actually that are involved. So the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is one of those. And that is a key region for mentalizing or thinking about what another person will do. What are their intentions? Um, how might they reciprocate the action? So when you are trying to assess the risk, just as Jamil said, part of what you needed to do was to figure out what I was thinking. So this part of the brain sits right um, above your nose, right in the right in your forehead. But there's also another region, the amygdala, which is you know, probably a very famous region. People know a lot about it because it's almond shaped. It's on two sides of the brain and it's considered to be the threat or the fear center. Oh, interesting. Okay. So we have sort of the the prefrontal cortex um, and Mm -hmm. and the the amygdala associated with two different kinds of of human thinking, actually. Really, really interesting. And by the way, Oriel, um, I would have never walked away with all 10 bucks, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about what happens in your brain when you trust or feel trustworthy. More in a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode two of our special series called Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. And today we're taking a close look and trying to understand about what's actually happening in your brain, in that neural network, in your mind, uh, when you trust someone or you trust an institution or you feel trustworthy yourself. And Oriel Feldman-Hall joins us to help uh, understand that question. She's an assistant professor of cognitive linguistic and psychological sciences at Brown University, director of the Feldman-Hall Lab, which studies questions of the brain. And Jamil Zaki is also with us. He's an associate professor of psychology at Stanford University and director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He's got a forthcoming book called The hopeful skeptic. And Jamil, Oriel was saying some really, really interesting things to me about the different parts of the brain, right, that are um, uh, associated or, or activated when 
we're feeling trusted or or trusting someone. Because if I understood correctly, we've got um, parts of the prefrontal cortex which are important to sort of assess the world around us, right, and make judgments. And then she also you also mentioned she also mentioned the uh, the amygdala, which is kind of a, a center of elemental fight or flight um, uh, behavior. And I know that I'm oversimplifying here, but for the sake of time. Um, so two really different parts parts of the brain here. But what's actually happening when we say these uh, parts of the brain are being activated? Is there some sort of surge in a neurotransmitter or what's going on? Well, uh, typically the studies that we're talking about now are functional magnetic resonance imaging studies, which actually look at metabolism in the brain. So which parts of the brain are using oxygen in a particular moment, which neuroscientists then use as a proxy for which parts of the brain are active. Now, exactly which neurotransmitters are involved uh, is, is usually mysterious if we're only using fMRI. There are other techniques that we would need to use to, to learn that as well. Okay, so because I wanted to, you know, when uh, Oriel, when you mentioned um, reward being um, mm -hmm. part of the part of what's going on here, just again in my layperson's understanding, my mind first went to dopamine, right? Because the whole idea of like that little dopamine squirt that we get sometimes when we feel like we're we're winning or get a reward is that part of the picture here at all? Yes, I mean. It is part of the picture. However, as Jamil said, it's hard um, using just fMRI, just these imaging techniques to understand the role of dopamine specifically. And so for the most part, what neuroscientists are doing is looking at broad brushstrokes, which regions of the brain are involved, like the striatum or the amygdala or the prefrontal cortex, and whether there's further engagement. So that is just, as you said, surging activity, which we call the bold signal. And with more um, uh, current and cutting edge techniques, we can also look at how patterns of neural activity encode the things that Jamil was speaking about earlier, like risk assessment. So not just about where and how strongly a region is involved, but what exactly that region is representing when it is engaged. Okay. So, what, so what's the significance of that? Help me understand more. <clears throat> sure. So... People have different risk profiles, just as you mentioned. And what we could do by using these different types of techniques um, with imaging is to assess what exactly your risk profile looks like in the brain. So if you have a pattern of activity in the striatum that is different than a pattern of activity in my striatum, it might link to a risk profile that is, let's say, more risky than mine, which is more risk averse. And with these techniques, we can assess those differences at the neural level. Huh. Okay. So, you know, it, it occurs to me that I'm kind of interchanging um, or when an individual decides to trust someone else or an institution and when someone feels trustworthy. Now, they're, they're two different things, right? So, I mean, Jamil, I was reading about how there were some early studies, maybe 15-ish years ago, that found that when, when someone feels trustworthy or, or, or someone else has demonstrated that they trust uh, that person. So like if you if you showed me that you trusted me, that that might generate a rise in me in oxytocin. So even just feeling trusted has some sort of effect on on a person and their brain. 
That's right, Meghna. And I think this brings us to a really important point, which is that Oftentimes when, so for instance, when we just played the trust game, you were focused on a couple of things, sort of, well, is this other person who I don't know going to walk away with my money? You were thinking about, as most people do, the vulnerability that trust uh, gives us, right? The way that when we trust somebody, we're putting something on the line. What I think we don't often realize enough is how much we affect other people when we decide whether or not to trust them. Uh, so when you decide to trust somebody, you're sending a signal to them of who you think they are. And you're, they're also receiving a signal about who you are, that you're a social person who's willing to invest in them. And it turns out that receiving that trust teaches people a lot and also makes them feel uh, good if they receive trust, which, as you said, is, uh, is related to activity of oxytocin. But also when people don't receive trust, if you had sent $1 to Oriel or nothing, <laughs> well, then she would have maybe felt alienated. And it turns out that that's why people or part of why people tend to reciprocate trust and retaliate against distrust. So in addition to seeing trust as a decision about how, whether we want to be vulnerable to somebody else, we should see it as a decision to affect somebody else, to be kind through our trust, or maybe to be unkind through our distrust. Yeah. So this is so fascinating to me because, um, I mean, the common wisdom is that uh, it's Maybe it's hard to build trust, but really easy to lose it. I mean, your example about the game is is spot on because, Oriel, I can only imagine how you would feel if I just like I'm like I'll give you fifty cents, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but 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 it's like but it was it, it would be like the first real interaction between us. We don't know anything about each other, um, you and but that one little decision that I'd make would have a major impact on how much you would choose to trust me in the future? I mean, is it really that that quick in terms of how people are judging others' trustworthiness? That's correct. And one of the things, you know, the old saying, just as you mentioned, it takes a while to build trust and it's easy to lose it. If you make that initial step to not trust, it's hard or to be actually to betray the trust. It makes it very difficult to come back and build that trust again. And that's what we call the sticky prior. So you have this information that a person has betrayed you and it takes very, a number of repeated um, experiences to push that aside and to start building trust again. The other thing is that people make decisions about how trustworthy an individual is just by looking at their face. We don't have that ability because, you know, we're talking through the phone right now in a podcast. But if we were looking at one another in front of each other, you and I would both make snap second decisions or excuse me, judgments about how trustworthy we would look. And those judgments about whether you look trustworthy or not are very predictive of important outcomes like, um, elections, uh, election success, or prison sentencing. And so there's a lot that goes into the equation of how we come to trust another person. Okay. Hang on here for just a second. I mean, you're referencing studies that find that, uh, and, and you're, you've done work on this directly, that find that we are looking at other people and making decisions about trustworthiness in milliseconds, Right. That's uh, that's correct. That's not, actually not my work. This is Alex Todorov's work. Okay. He's done beautiful, elegant work in this space showing just how quickly it happens. So yeah, in milliseconds, essentially in 30 milliseconds, which 
which is less than one-tenth of a second, people can make these decisions about how trustworthy an individual looks. What are they looking at that, that, that gives them the information that they're processing in one-tenth of a second? Yeah, so the whole face is basically captured, but what they're looking at is how far apart um, an individual's eyes are, the luminance of their cheekbones, the wide setness of their jaw. This all gets taken in in this very quick, automatic way and evaluated to render a decision of whether the person looks trustworthy or whether they don't. What about those factors makes us evolutionarily programmed, to use an awkward phrase, to think that certain certain things are more trustworthy than others? So there's an efficiency in making these decisions. So if I meet you in a dark alley and everything that my brain says is that Magna's not trustworthy, my amygdala is going to come online and tell me to turn around and run the other way. And that's an important thing to have in your toolkit. Because if you find yourself in a situation where you are um, approaching threat or there's something that is threatening to you, you need to eliminate it immediately. And so our bodies and our brains are wired, so to speak, to figure out those threatening situations very quickly and very swiftly. Okay. So, Jamil, I have to say, while the, I mean, this this is really, really compelling research that Oriel is is referencing here. It also makes me feel more than a little concerned. <laughs> yeah, um, because you know, like using her example, like if, if if there was some brief millisecond interaction between between Oriel and and I, and um, and her brain determined that I was untrustworthy, and so therefore, is it that um, people who look like me would also be untrustworthy, and if so, I mean, I'm of uh, you know Indian heritage, so we'd be writing off more than a billion people here. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but you, you see what I'm getting at? It's worrisome to say the least. I do. I think Oriel just described this work beautifully, and it's really important to understand that our brains might have these defaults. But just to say that we have these defaults is not the same as saying that they are correct. Um, and sometimes understanding when we might have instincts to trust or not trust people based on the way that they look, actually, the way to use that information is to know that this might be a bias that you have that's probably driving you in the wrong direction a bunch of the time. And being aware of those biases can help. You know, another general bias that we have is just to not trust people enough, to be cynical about whether people in general, not just people who look a certain way, but all people will reciprocate. And one of the tricky things about that is that it's very difficult to learn based on not trusting somebody. So if we trust someone and we're betrayed, we learn, you know, it's, it takes years to earn that trust and seconds to lose it. And we're always, you know, once burned, twice shy. But uh, when we don't trust somebody, we can miss an opportunity. But those missed opportunities don't last in our memories the way that betrayal does. And as a result, we tend to be too risk averse in the social world. We tend to be too amygdala driven uh, in our trust decisions. And we lose out on opportunities, not just to you know, make partnerships or collaborations, but to form and build relationships as well. Yeah, you know, I understand how, let's say, in early human society societies, this um, 
snap judgment, literally, of trustworthiness actually makes some sense. But of course, we're living in a very, very different world now, and especially in places like the United States, where we are still working at trying to create, you know, this multi-ethnic democracy um, that that relies fundamentally on trusting each other, no matter who we are and, and what we look like, in order to make the country as as a whole work. I mean, Jamil, just for a second here, take this take this to to the national level. Like what you and 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 Oriel have been have been researching for all this time. How does it how does it work when it comes to let's say how Americans trust each other? Well, I think that we, I would argue, don't trust each other enough. If you ask people to estimate how much a person will reciprocate in a trust game, they underestimate it by about 30%. So we believe that people are less trustworthy than they really are. Uh, And I think that to your point, we are especially uh, loath to trust people who are different from ourselves in any number of ways, whether people who look differently like us than us, people who identify differently, people who believe different things than we do. And, and, And I think that that those ancient instincts that, again, Oriel described really well, might have served us in ancient times, but they're not always serving us now. And that lack of trust across difference can be an enormous barrier to collaboration uh, between people, to friendships, and I would argue to democracy. Because once we start to imagine that people we disagree with are just wholesale untrustworthy, that they're bad people, well, then we foreclose on any uh, possibility of of finding common ground. Now, Oriel, your lab, I think I have this part right, that your, your lab has found that um, we, you know, because of these impulses that you talked about, we do tend to overgeneralize. Like everybody does. Is that right? That's right. I'm <clears throat> so we we did this study a number of years ago now where we had individuals play the game that you and I played, Magna. So essentially you could learn about individuals who were trustworthy and those who were untrustworthy. What we then did is we took the pictures of those individuals that they were played with. So we were all looking at faces of the individuals, the partners in the trust game. But unbeknownst to our subjects, we morphed those people you learned that were trustworthy or untrustworthy untrustworthy with different other people that they had never met before. And then we said, let's play the trust game again with these individuals who had some resemblance. They had some parts of their faces um, that resembled those um, initial people that they learned were trustworthy or who were not trustworthy. And what we found was that that initial learning of, let's say, someone being trustworthy or untrustworthy, very much biased their decision to trust a completely novel, unfamiliar stranger. So there's this perceptual similarity that what you're speaking about, Magna, actually has a lot of import for, let's say, stereotype bias. Mm -hmm. If you have one bad interaction or one good interaction with an individual who looks a certain way, you may then overgeneralize what that person looks like to people of the entire race um, and make judgments about whether they're trustworthy or untrustworthy based on that initial learned response um, from uh, a previous interaction. So just to be clear, I mean, we're this we're not providing any kind of excuse here for racism, right? We're just trying to understand, um, you know, how how the brain functions. But knowing what what you know now, Oriel, um, 
we've got just got a minute here before the, the next break, so I'll let you start uh, answering this. What should we do? How should we modify our own individual behaviors to prevent ourselves from overgeneralizing? That's a tough but good question. I think there's a lot of automaticity that happens with overgeneralization. Again, it's an efficiency mechanism that allows us to come into a situation that might be threatening or aversive and walk away and thus preserve, um, you know, and be, and be adaptive to our well-being. But the problem is, and Jamil mentioned this as well, is that our current society, the the place that we live in the here and now is not built in the same way. And so if we have these impulses that rise up, part of what we need to be doing is checking those impulses, Mm -hmm. thinking about them, and then evaluating to see if they're actually correct or not. Back in a moment. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode two of our special series, Essential Trust, what trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. And we definitely want to hear from you, On Point listeners. Want to know what your stories are of trust between you and an individual or when that trust was broken and how you rebuilt it. But also... I want to know about what your level of trust is with institutions around you, with government institutions, with the media, Um, um, with religious institutions. Take your pick. What's your level of trust with them? If If it's not high, if it's low, why? How did it get broken, and what would it take to rebuild it? Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. You can also send us a message through the OnPoint Vox Pop app. It's a great new app we've got. It's in the App Store or on Google Play, so just download it, and you can uh, connect with us that way. But again, if you just want to pick up the phone, it's 617-353-0683. I'm joined today by Jamil Zaki. He's Associate Professor of Psychology at Stanford University and Oriel Feldman Hall, Assistant Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. Now, Oriel and Jamil, I just want to share something that a listener had um, already sent to us. It's a really interesting story from Leslie Stamuvis from Spokane, Washington. And she told us about her relationship with her friend Mandy. We became fast, fierce best friends when we were 16 years old, and about six months later, I had to move away. And we maintained our friendship from 300 miles apart, but as we grew and as as things started to change and she went off to college and I was still in high school, we started to grow apart. And eventually a few things happened that caused us to totally lose trust in each other. And then we lost touch, and we didn't talk for about 10 years. So the relationship was completely broken. But after those 10 years had passed, as Leslie was getting ready to move across the country, she actually did something interesting. She reached out to Mandy, even after a 10-year silence, to tell her that she missed her and that she hoped to restore their friendship. So we came together and, and we talked and we shared how we both felt about what had happened in the past. Neither one of us remembered all the details, and we didn't feel the need to rehash the details either. All we knew was that we loved each other, and we missed each other, and we wanted to come back together. So to rebuild that trust did not take 
a whole lot of work, actually. But one key thing that did happen is that Mandy and I apologized to each other. Now, there's a little more to this story, but Jamil, I just wanted to hear your your reaction to that, because I thought that was so interesting, what Leslie said about how she and Mandy rebuilt their friendship. I love that story. And you know, I think that it speaks to a couple of themes that you see in, in the science of trust and in the sociology of it as well. I, I mean, the first is that after trust is lost, it's easy to assume that a relationship is over forever. And again, we tend to be risk averse to call somebody up after 10 years and say, you know, I'm sorry about what happened. That takes a lot of risk. That's a lot of work. And if somebody rejects you, it could be enormously painful. But a lot of research suggests that, in fact, we overestimate the risks and underestimate the benefits of taking those chances on people. There's a bunch of work that shows that when people imagine reaching out to somebody, either somebody new or somebody maybe in their life who they haven't talked with in a while, they overestimate how awkward it will be, how likely it will be that the person will judge them, and they underestimate how likely it will be that the interaction will be positive and fulfilling. And in this case, thankfully, Leslie took this chance and Mandy, these two took this chance on each other and realized that in fact, you know, there was a lot of love still there. Yeah, this is a recurrent theme in every time we learn more about uh, the brain or guests uh, uh, come on the show about any neurological topic. People are really bad at estimating things, turns out. <laughs> um, but Oriel, you know, one detail in Leslie's story really stands out to me. When she said after she reconnected with Mandy after 10 years, she said, neither of us remembered all the details about what had happened in the past. And we didn't feel the need to rehash the details either. Is that significant? I mean, it speaks very well of their ability to rekindle their relationship. And I think, you know, memory is a fallible system. We don't have these perfect filing systems for what happened. Um, There is no veridicality um, for the history, the stamp of history. And so our brains do a lot to reinterpret those memories in the context of what's important to us. Now, when they rekindle that relationship, one of the things that the research shows is that trusting another person in an unconditional way feels really good. The part of the brain that encodes um, positive hedonic experiences lights up with these unconditional trusting moments. And what was probably happening there when they rekindled their relationship is that parts of the brain were lighting up that made it feel really good between them. And that helped, you know, be the social glue that was important to carry on their friendship. Yes. So this takes us to the last part of Leslie's story because... She also told us that since she and Mandy reconnected and critically, as she said, apologized to each other, their relationship has become essential in Leslie's life. Mandy and I are now incredibly close. We talk almost every day. Um, We share our lives together, even though we live 2,000 miles apart. And the trust that I have in her is greater than anyone else in my life besides my husband. So that's Leslie Stamuvis from Spokane, Washington. Jamil, pick up on what Oriel was saying about what are the measurable benefits of having trust in others that we oh, that we know. Yeah, go ahead. It's it's enormous. I mean, you can think of trust as the kind of grease in our social engine that just 
makes social life work. And that's at a number of different levels. One is when we have trusting relationships, that bolsters us as individuals. It improves our mental health and our physical health as well. People who feel as though they can trust the folks in their lives tend to live longer. They're less likely to die from heart disease, for instance, than those who feel like they can't trust other people. But trust also is the grease in our national social engines. So for instance, countries that have greater interpersonal trust tend to flourish economically compared to those that don't. And, and that's the good news. The bad news is that if, if trust is this precious natural resource, it's endangered. So in 1972, about half of Americans agreed that most people can be trusted. But by 2018, that had fallen to about 30%. We trust institutions far less than we did uh, 50 years ago. So for instance, uh, in 1970, 80% of Americans trusted the medical system. Now it's 38%. Uh, TV news in the 1970s was 46%. Now it's 11%. <laughs> Congress, 42 to 7%. We are living through a massive trust recession. And that is hurting us at in a number of ways that probably most people are totally unaware of. What's driving this, Jamil? I mean, I have my own theories, but what do you think is driving this trust recession? Well, it's, it's hard to know because history is not an experiment. You can't run it a bunch of different times and tinker with different factors and show which one causes a reduction in trust. But a couple of things pop out. You know, one is that we, uh, we is, is that highly unequal societies, whether it's communities, towns, states, or countries tend to be lower in social trust. When there are high profile examples of corruption, that also can damage trust in a population for a long time. But another thing gets back to what we were talking about earlier with money. So when people feel like they're in competition with one another, when they're counting what they have and comparing it to what the person next to them has, it's harder for people in those zero-sum contexts to build trust. Well, I would speculate, and this is a speculation, that a lot more of our lives are comparable than they used to be. So I used to be, maybe know if someone's house was bigger than mine, but now I also know whether they're taking more steps than I do, whether mm. they're meditating more, whether they're getting more likes on social media. And I think that that comparative mindset might not be great for trust either. Well, there also has to, I'm thinking about, um, uh, Oreo, I'm thinking about the research that you've done about overgeneralization and that, you know, the facial um, uh, millisecond judgments that, that we're making. I mean, it also seems to me that maybe this, our national trust recession um, has been the direct result of political and media manipulation. Because, I mean, if if it's so easy to lose trust in, in other groups of people, um, I don't think the w the way the media is right now or even our political culture is is helping us build trust in each other. I think that's right. I think it's a two-way street and I think that you look at the way that for example the media approached politics 50 years ago and there were um, dimensions and domains that the media wouldn't touch, let's say, when interviewing a president. That is no longer the case. It's sort of every aspect of a person's life is allowed to you know, be exploited and probed and investigated on. And that has repercussions for what we know about politicians, for Congress, for the police force, so on and so forth. You know, this is just a speculation, but I wonder if the trust recession that we're seeing on a national level 
isn't funneled into a different outlet, which is a more core familial um, type of trust. So taking our trust away from institutions and funneling it into a smaller circle of friends and family. And you might see that in echo chambers, for example, on Twitter or on Facebook or in social media, where you surround yourself with people who agree with what you believe, certainly on a political level. Huh. Well, you know, speaking of institutions, though, the um, in trying to understand the neurobiology of trust, um, it just occurs to me that most of the conversation that the three of us have had has been like how we experience in our brain trust of other individuals, right? But does the same sort of brain activity... Uh, come into play when we're talking about trusting institutions? Because there is no, like, one face, right? And um, and the interactions are different. So, Oriel, is it, but is it a similar brain activity? It is, yes. Yeah. So just the way you and I started off this hour by playing the trust game, but we're not looking at each other, we can make these decisions about trust without having some face in front of us or without looking into each other's eyes. And that's exactly what happens on an abstract level when you're thinking about institutions or different political groups or um, you know the police or whatever it might be. You can abstract away from looking at a particular face or thinking about a particular their face and make these types of trust judgments on a much higher level. Okay. So, Jamil, this makes me wonder, um, every time we talk about the brain, I, I feel myself balancing on this knife's edge about like, okay, and how much of my life is, is being governed by uh, evolution and instinct versus how much can I actually modify that to really, you know, fit the times that we're living in? I guess this is the same question I asked Oriel earlier, but I'd love to hear sort of your toolkit here for people listening to this hour. What would you recommend they do in order to, to maximize the benefits in their even in their own lives of trusting others? It's a great question, Meghna. And, you know, I want to go back to something that Oriel said, which was that we are sort of wired in particular ways, maybe to be risk averse and maybe to be especially risk averse when people don't look like us or think like us or talk like us uh, because we worry that they might betray our trust. We might be wired that way, but I would argue that the brain is not hardwired, that it's softwired. And that just because we have some ancient instinct doesn't mean that we have to succumb to that instinct and say, well, I guess that's just who I am. We can take control of our instincts and reflect on them and be intentional. And so I guess what I would suggest to listeners is when you are considering whether to trust somebody or an institution, maybe be aware that you might have too much of an amygdala-driven perspective to start out with. You might be overestimating the risk and underestimating the benefit. You might be relying on biases, maybe biases that you aren't aware of right away, but can become aware of. And one of the things that you might consider is whether you might take a chance on somebody, test the waters a little bit more than you are. And I think what the evidence tells us is that when people do that, they're often quite surprised, quite positively surprised, by how trustworthy and giving other people are, by how much they want to connect, just like the story that you shared with us of those two friends from Spokane, uh, and how much trusting somebody actually leads to all sorts of hidden rewards in our lives that we would otherwise miss if we were too fearful. Huh. 
So take a chance. Well, Jamil Zaki, Associate Professor of Psychology at Stanford University and Director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab, author of many books, including the forthcoming The Hopeful Skeptic. Jamil, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming back. That was fun. Thank you, Magna. And Oriel Feldman Hall, Assistant Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University and Director of the Feldman Hall Lab, which studies the neural basis of human social behavior. Professor Feldman Hall, a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And thank you for having me. Okay. Well, you know, as we've talked about a little bit in this hour, there is pretty strong evidence that one of the best predictors of a country's economic well-being is, yes, how much citizens trust each other and their institutions. So remember, Jamil Zaki mentioned those studies that show how barely 30 percent of Americans think most people can be trusted. Puts those studies in rather concerning light, doesn't it? There is some important nuance here, though, because according to the Inter-American Development Bank, only 20 percent of Americans have low levels of trust in people in their own communities. Okay, so most people versus in their own communities. Now, there are nations where levels of community distrust are much, much higher. Countries like Brazil. We've had, for the good portion of our recent democracy, massive corruption scandals. I can't even start telling you how many corruption scandals there were. The Inter-American Development Bank estimates that more than 60% of Brazilians do not think that people in their own communities can be trusted. And their distrust of institutions is even higher. And that's all contributed to a negative feedback loop that is holding the whole country down. We have a big tax burden. So can you imagine the feeling of having, I don't know, Scandinavian levels of taxes, but receiving third world level of services? Lessons from Brazil. That's what we'll take a look at in episode three of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Point.